So hello and welcome to another episode of Elixir Mix. I'm your host, Alan Wyma. Today on the panel, we also have Adi Iyengar. Did I actually say hello. that right? <laughs> I think it's a yes. Yes, he did. It's kind of like ear memory because I never have to say your name usually. And we also have uh, Herman Ver... Verschoten. Verschoten. Did I say that yeah. okay? I thought I had to... Yeah, a bit. yeah. Close enough. Close enough. Herman, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm frequently surprised at how many companies are running their apps in production without any way of knowing when things go wrong. Or who are running them in production and not really having a way of knowing where things are slowing down. That's why I recommend that people use a service like AppSignal. AppSignal plugs into your application seamlessly, whether you're using Rails, Phoenix, or something else, and provides you a way of knowing when things go wrong, when things are going slow, and what other problems your application may be facing so that you can fix them and provide a seamless user experience for those who are using your app. So whether you're starting a new app or working on an existing app, you should check out AppSignal and see how it can work for you. Go to AppSignal.com. That's A-P-P-S-I-G-N-A-L.com. Yeah, like I said, I think I was the one that clicked the button, say invite. So I'm happy that you took the invitation because uh, as we were just discussing in, in the show, you do deploy on bare metal. Ugh, oh, what's what happened? I mean, <laughs> no, I'm not trying to make fun of you, but you know, it's it's as we were talking before the show, I, I barely hear about that anymore. And it's good to talk about that. But I think maybe we can start a little bit more about your past and then that can kind of start to answer that question for us. So what did you get into programming and what were you doing first? Well, I got in programming some time ago. It was, I think, somewhere around 1983, 84. So I'm a bit older than most and as usual, it was then I started programming basic and got very heavily to, into a computer system, which was called Atom Computer System, and went from there to uh, a PC and worked my way through different languages, uh, going from uh, Pascal, C, to eventually the .NET family of languages, Visual Basic, around 2005, mid Ruby. Oh, sorry, I wanted to stop you for a second. Uh, you said yeah. Atom, right? Isn't that the... Is that Maybe I got this wrong in my history. Isn't it related to Acorn and ARM, or am I wrong? No. The Atom computer was a computer that was built based upon a game console that was released by Coleco Industries somewhere around 1982-83, which was a competitor for the Atari game console at that time. Okay, for some reason I thought Adam was, but maybe, I guess I obviously remember wrong. I must be thinking about Acorn and ARM rather than No, no. You didn't really get those in, in, in Belgium. Yeah, I didn't know Coleco was over there. I had ColecoVision at home somewhere, I think from my parents' days. So, Well, it was, I, it was very strange for us too, because Coleco, as far as we knew, was a toy manufacturer. They were most known in Belgium for their Cabbage Patch dolls. And then all of a sudden, we were offered, my, my, my father had a, uh, a game in a toy store and model trains and things like that. And we already sold the Atari computer and they were offered to sell this ColecoVision too with a promise that you could expand it to a real computer system, and that was the Atom computer. And that's how I really got started. That was somewhere really programming to programming and IT support. That was somewhere around 1984 when I was like, well, at that time, around uh, 14, 15 years old. So at that time, you could just homebrew stuff, right? You didn't have to have, I mean, because I have a ClickVision at home, and it's basically all cartridge-based. So there was yeah. some kind of way you can add a storage to it and then start actually just doing your own thing. You don't need to apply for a dev kit or license or whatever like you do nowadays. No, no, you just you just have a, a, a console that you could click into the front board, and that turned it into a real computer system, which had a daisy wheel printer, had a tape drive, not like the Commodore used to have, where you had your start and stop and rewind that you had to do. This was a system that was directly controlled by the computer. And that would just, uh, where you could just um, get a catalog of the files on it and say, okay, I want to load that file. It was a very, very, very um, 
novel and very, um, how do you say, ahead of its time. And it was a very fun system to program. I, I worked on it for years. I even wrote my own basic interpreter, but I was using Z80 Assembler. And that was when I got into PCs because the Atom wasn't uh, powerful enough to compile the source code anymore. So I had to convert the disks to PC format, do the compiling on PC, convert it back to the Atom format, and then try and see if I, what, I, what, I, what I'd done worked. So uh, it was usually around several hours. That sounds horrible. Nah, it's fun. It's a hobby. I guess uh, we're all kind of masochists for us. We wouldn't be doing programming because debugging is like more than half your life, I think, right? Yeah, and you have to remember that we were, at that time we were running systems that had like a speed of uh, 3.5 megahertz. So it's not like what we have today. <laughs> yeah, this is but true. But essentially I left the Adam behind and kept working on, on, the, on the PCs. And as I just said, I also started moving languages, uh, worked with Ruby for about 10 years, learned about Elixir, and tried it and fell in love with it. Now, what made you fall in love with it? Because I also came from Ruby, and I think I first tried Elixir, and it just didn't click because it's so different when you're actually working with it rather than from Ruby. I think the difference for me is that I never really liked all the object-oriented stuff. The languages I used at first, that was even before object-oriented really became known. Um, I learned C, not C++. And I also worked with a language when I was working at a bank, which was called SAS, which had like data steps in which you do transformation, read something from a file, do transformation, a sort step, and things like that, manipulate the output. And that functional programming that you do there was something that I felt very much to uh, returning when I started working with Elixir. So for me, it felt like more like coming home. Ruby was fun, but Ruby always carried the danger that somebody could change something underneath you and all of a sudden something would crash and you wouldn't know why because you'd installed some kind of gem that would have changed string, for example. And I really prefer, I think it has maybe has to do with H2, but I really prefer things to be more clear and not too much magic anymore. Mm, okay, I see. But after working at the bank, I, uh, well, while working at the bank, I started as an ISP in Belgium. So I was an internet service provider from uh, 1994 till the end of 2004. And that meant that we not only provided internet access to our customers, first from dial-up modems in the DSL, but I also provided hosting. And from that hosting, I've always run my own servers. I've never had servers that were rented by some, uh, from somebody else. So when I stopped uh, at the end of 2004, which I sold it to my uh, colleagues with uh, a company called knit for all I still had my own service running, but then in a data center just around the corner. And I still do. So I still have my own service. I still offer hosting to a number of customers. So when I need to deploy something, for me, it's only logical to do it on, on bare metal because... I'm not going to rent some space in somebody else's server when I have my own. Okay. Yeah, so it's not that I'm that kind of masochist, but still. No, this is this is true. But I mean, there's a lot of setup involved when you have to run your own kind of stuff, right? Like I think nowadays with Fly.io or these Heroku-like push, push services, I mean, life has just become easier where it's just like, okay, I don't want to have to set up a server because yes, you have to install image magic and whatever else kind of dependencies you need or Erlang, etc. Nowadays, you can just take a base image that has what you need and kick it over and then it just kind of runs, right? I mean, with a 
bare metal, do you still have to set up everything? I mean, are you using uh, Puppet or anything to kind of automate that process? Or No, but I'm using Proxmox, which is a virtualization platform. The basic installation of Linux is not something I really have to do. I just choose the image and I've got an image with, with most of the things already installed. And I just need to add those things that I need, like, for example, a Postgres. I don't need to install Erlang because that's what I do for my deploy. Wait, so I spent yep. I spent a long time uh, perfecting my <laughs> my GitHub action, which is in itself already a continuance of what I used to use on Circle CI. Okay. Yeah, I think that's one of the. I mean, having de- deployed Elixir applications like this for five years, first five years, first four four years of my life as an Elixir engineer, I I mean, one of the biggest advantages is that you don't need mm-hmm. online runtime, right? Especially like build tools like distillery and stuff. I think one of the problems that very early that I ran into, I'm sure you you did too, and you probably have, have a solution for that, is that the build environment in which you build the app, the release, should match the runtime environment. And in some, in some cases, it's not just the operating system version, but, you know, packages mm-hmm. need to also be the same. And th- that was such a big black box for me that that was like the big, one of the biggest reasons why I wanted to go towards containerization and deploying as a container, right? So how do you manage stuff like well, that? Well, I must say I haven't run into too many problems. I use Ubuntu as a beige image, which is kind of stable. And I also only use LTS versions, so the long-time support, support, support versions, because that, that makes it much more easy to avoid those kind of issues. I know when I first started doing my deployments, it was really co- copying your code to the server, installing Erlang and Elixir and doing your compilation on the server, which was a problem because every time you did an update, it would install a new version of Erlang and everything would break. And I also made a foray right. into, into uh, containerization by having it run as a, as a just mixed Phoenix server um, in a Docker image and things like that. But I never felt happy with it. I always felt it was like, yeah, it does work. But every time you needed to deploy something, it was like, how do I do this again? Okay, I'd make a script. I'd run my own, my own Docker, what you call it, registry, uh, because the images of my source, I just don't want to have somewhere public. So I'd run that, that myself, which I had to remember which server it was on and things like that. And it, it always it always was more than a hassle to me than what it was worth. It's a difference of opinion. It's a difference of style. I know. I never went into Kubernetes or things like that. I looked at it, but one of my issues always was, what would I do with, with my database? Now, yeah. for me, it's 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 one image. It's one server which gets back up uh, every night. My databases get get back up every hour. I'm quite comfortable with that. If I need to set up another server, spin up another server, well, it takes me not that long. Setting up the Proxmox server takes a couple of right. minutes and installing the rest of the packages I need is, is, is like 10, 15 minutes more. It's the first thing I do right. when I make a new pro- new project, when I start a new project, is getting my deployment fixed. Mm. And that will take me, like say, like an hour. Yeah, yeah. I do think Kubernetes would have been a overkill for you, right? You don't need, you have this one singular app that you're deploying that you want. Uh, the fact that you're focused on one app, you might not need the level of orchestration that Kubernetes, mm. you know, comes comes with. But I think setting up is one part, right? But then there's maintenance, right? And and, and you, for you, it's like, you know, something you're used to, you know, making sure the server mm-hmm. is updated, making sure Postgres uh, versions are, you know, 
updated and the data is compatible, right? Stuff like that, right? Uh, as you as you manage all those all of those things, how how has been your experience managing updating security related updates or performance related updates through the lifetime of an app? Well, I I, I now it's more than a single app I run about I think about thirty or forty apps in total. That depend uh, some on each depend other? on each other. I um, oh, okay outside of of this hosting and the IT support business. I have another business, which is called Gratwifi, uh, which is a hotspot system, in which I write all the software. That means also the software runs on the routers and things like that, which I, that's, that's everything I write. And the backend exists of uh, three uh, Phoenix applications that talk to each other using PubSub and uh, using clustering, and, and they all use the same database server. So there's sometimes I, I have to make sure, but it's... I remember when I was using Ruby and you do an upgrade on one server and you, for example, you'd upgraded your MySQL, you could get into trouble that the Ruby MySQL client wouldn't talk to the MySQL server you had, which is something I haven't run into with Postgres. It's much more stable. I usually try my upgrades uh, first on one of the, the lesser important pro- projects. And once I'm sure it's, it's up and running and causes no problem, then I'll go on to the others. And security updates is something I do, let's say, weekly, bi-weekly. And it's still something I do by hand. I know that you can do that. There are, there are scriptings, tools that you can use. But my experience is that every server is like a person and they never do the same. Yep. You can install three servers at the same time, install the same packages, and one of the three will give you an error. Using the same base image on the safe server, it's, it's, it's just the way the IT works. Right. Yeah. And I think it really this, yeah, I think this whole approach really speaks to, like you said, your experience, your experience before, you know, of being an ISP and managing being a place where other people use your services to deploy their applications. So yeah, I think that's, like I said, that is like the reason why you're able to set up, maintain, and also cross that psychological bridge to do weekly maintenance and security updates to people like Alan and me. Like, it's like, oh, man, I want this work to be managed by an external mm-hmm. service, right? And like minimize the the discrepancies and, uh, you know, w- whatever things that might break that we have less knowledge about, right? But yeah, and that, that's that's where you're different and you do this all, all on your own. I guess one last query I have at a high level would be advantage of using even a simple hosted mm-hmm. service like Heroku, right? Uh, not even Kubernetes, not even AWS, something simple. Say you have your SLA start changing, right? Let me, so say a subset of your data needs a lot of reads. To create a follower database that's a read mm-hmm. replica is two seconds work. And even this most simplest managed services uh, platform, how do you deal with such, you know, more advanced scalability or availability-based or uh, consistency-based requests? I haven't yet. So it's never been an issue. I used to run my Gratwifi project started out, out as a Ruby application in uh, something like 2008. And there I used to use MySQL, which ran on the server in the data center and which had a slave running on my machine here at home. Uh, with Postgres, I've never done this. Uh, I just have a command that syncs over and it's, it's all I need at the moment. It's one of the issues I have with Postgres that there is no clear way for me to to do an easy replication, to an easy, do an easy uh, failover right. setup and things like that. And that's one of the reasons I, I have some looked at those kind of hosting solutions, but not to use them, but I to run them myself. Because that's always, that's, that's, that's my nature. 
So in the time when I was still doing Ruby, I looked at, looked at, at, at some of the projects that mimicked Heroku that would allow you to do the same, but none of them were stable enough to use it in production. So I just kept plodding on the way I've, I've been doing for the past, uh, well, let's see, since 1994, which is how long? Uh, too long. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's also part of my hobby. Mm-hmm. So I com- I, I'm one of those lucky guys that can combine his, his work with his hobby, with his passion. It's also my, right. uh, a part of my creativity. Have you ever wished that you had a group of people that were just as passionate about writing code as you are? I know I did. I did that for most of my career. I'd go to the meetups. I'd try and create other opportunities. And it was just really hard, right? The meetups, I got some of that, but they were only like once or twice a month. And it was just really hard to find that group of people that I connected with and, and really wanted to, you know, talk about code a lot, right? I mean, I love writing code. I think it's the best. And so I've decided to create this community and create it a, a worldwide community that we can all jump in and do it. So we're going to have two workshops every week. One of those or two of those every month are going to be Q&A calls, right, where you can get on, you can ask me or me and another expert questions. Uh, The rest of them are going to be focused on different aspects of career or programming or things like that, right? So it'll go anywhere from like deployments and containers all the way up to managing your 401k and negotiating your benefits package. Well, we'll cover all of it, okay? And then we're also going to have meetups every month for your particular technology area. So we have shows about JavaScript, React, Angular, Vue, and so on. We're going to have meetups for all of those things. I'm going to revive the freelancer show. We'll have one about that, right? So you can get started freelancing or continue freelancing if that's where you're at. And I'm working on finding authors who can actually do weekly video tutorials on something for 10 minutes that's related, again, to those technology areas so that you can stay current, keep growing. So if you're interested, go to topendevs.com slash sign up and you can get in right now for $39. When we're done, that price is going to go up to $75. And the $39 price gets you access to two calls per week. The The full price at $150, which is going to be $75 over the next few weeks, that price is going to get you access to all of the calls and all of the tutorials and everything else that we put out from Top End Devs along with member pricing for our remote conferences that are coming up next year. So go check it out, topendevs.com slash sign up. I think another, and this is something that some, the guy in me likes to do more root cause analysis. I think another thing that you, I, I'm starting to like slowly see in you as a person is, you know, the whole reasoning behind, you know, Ruby versus C, mm-hmm. you mentioned C, right? Is I, th- I, think, I think visibility and control over things that you're building, right? You, the light, the, the, what you, the level of control you like in, in the whole, you know, 100% control or 0% control spectrum, you're closer towards 100% control, right? And I can very much relate to that. Like the first time I used Kubernetes, I actually went and got uh, the CKA certificate, installed Kubernetes admin on a on a machine and learned how to manage that before going to manage Kubernetes, right? So I can totally relate to that. But I mean, it's also, like you said, hobby where you like to do it, which is why where you get the motivation to continuously do it week after week. So that that's really, really cool. Yeah, it's having finished, well, not finished because they're never finished, but having my, my deploy workflows in each project and having them kind of standardized for myself so I easily know what what to change where. And now having the possibility of just doing a, a push and having my deploy run saves me 
a lot of time, of course, when I'm doing my development. But toying and tinkering with those scripts is fun too. Totally. Uh, I uh, recently had to update most of my scripts because there's a deprecation with the uh, Node.js in the in the GitHub workers. So I had to change most of most of the scripts on all my projects. It's a hassle, but it's something I also like to do. When the time is there, I'll do them and I'll do all my projects. Even those that haven't changed in like more than a year in code, I'll update them so that if I need to change something, I'll, I'll be sure I can continue. And that's one of the other things that I like in, in our environment that we have now is when I try to go back to a Ruby project of like three, four years ago, most of the time I can't even run it anymore. That's when I, when I, when I uh, use my Docker experience to try and, try and create a Docker image that will allow me to run that project from a couple of years back to make a change to be able to test it. But I have other projects that I, I wrote in Elixir that I wrote like four, five, six years ago. I can still run them. I'm not going to say there's no issue at all, but the issues that are there are easily fixed. It's not like right. my brother also does programming. He also makes websites, but he's still, he's still in the Ruby ecosystem. And he complains about this all the time. He needs to do something, a project for one customer. He needs to have a, a certain version of a gem. He installs it. He goes to another project, and the other project doesn't work anymore because it needs the same gem, but another another version. And it doesn't just doesn't work. And with us, with the mixed lock file, it all works as it should, especially now with, with the changes that have recently been made of with getting rid of Webpack. That's such a blessing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> was, that was usually the thing that wouldn't work anymore. Yeah. Goodbye and good riddance. 100%. Really. <laughs> 100%. One of the other languages I yep. use is Elm. I've been using Elm for a couple, you know, for almost as long as Elixir, and that used to be a problem because you want to do something in a project that has Elm in it, and you'd get stuck for two, three days getting webpacking back up and running. And now with ES Build, right. it's no problem, and I just make a, just just add a yeah. script that uh, compiles my Elm application, use ES Build, and oh, it works. Totally. It's interesting that you're using Elm because, like, I want to use Elm, mm-hmm. but I always have like a lot of concerns because it's not being like kind of actively pushed out new versions, and and the it's kind of run by like one guy almost to a certain extent. I haven't really looked at it in a while, but I love the ideas. I, I love all this kind of stuff. It just seems like it's been stagnant, and it's very well, niche that's, in terms that's of not. That's not entirely I just said, that's true. I said it seems. It doesn't mean yeah, it really Yeah, is. but I think we're at a point in L where we don't need many changes anymore. It's like it's like Jose said, said a couple of years back, I don't think there will be an Elixir version 2 because our language is stable. And it's the same thing with Elm. There are some things that could be improved and there are some projects that do a better compilation or do an optimization of the compiled code. But the language in itself is... Well, kind of finished. So there's no need to keep pushing out updates because Evan doesn't want change. And if there's no need to change, we can do. We we my brother uses Elm much more than I do because most of his front ends he tries to use in Elm backend Ruby. And he's on over the past like five years, he's not run into a situation where he couldn't do something with Elm. So well it's it's every time I'm getting on the phone because your question says I really love Elm, especially the compiler. Compiler is so friendly. I love the Elm compiler for sure. Now the other side too is let's kind of go back to the analogy or the comparison you did. Okay, yes, 
Jose made that comment, or sorry, Jose made that comment. But at the same time, we've since increased the minor version of Elixir several times, adding new features, adding new compilation fixes, etc. Mm-hmm. Although he said, yes, it's basically done. I don't see any new version of Elm coming out. And that gives me some worry about if we should still be looking at it, right? Even like Phoenix and stuff, it's basically done. But, you know, okay, now they add in Tailwind generators, there's Heek stuff is coming in. Like there's more things coming to the community. At least that, maybe it's because I'm in that community, I see that. I yeah, but I think, I think the, the, the um, how, should I, how should I translate this? The field in which you use Alum is much smaller than the, the field in which you can use Elixir or even Phoenix. Yep. It's used, it's used to make applications in your browser. It's used to have a dependable language that you can use to create great UIs. It's not an all-purpose language like Elixir is. So there's much less room to make to, to add things to it. And adding things to add things and bringing out releases to bring out releases to say, hey, we're still alive. I don't know what's going to happen to Elm. I don't know what, what Evan's plans are. And I think everybody agrees that we haven't heard much of him over the past couple of years. But it's not like we're screaming for a new version. This version works as long as there's no no real problem with something that comes along that really says, okay, now we can't use it anymore because this or this has changed in the browsers and it will not work anymore. I don't see see much of a problem, my opinion. I am not very... I haven't seriously coded an Elm in the last three and a half years. I'm going to... I don't think I deserve to have an opinion here, but I'm going to very not smoothly transition this conversation back to the Beam world. I was looking, I think one way that you do things differently than others who use, you know, like bare metal is at at least uh, from a while ago when when I remember knowing people who used to use bare metal is that you use a system D Mm -hmm. to run the app, right? You don't just run the app. And I think, yeah, you want to talk more about that uh, and especially maybe also have you experimented with the hot upgrade, hot code upgrade and how would it work with system D? I don't, I don't really know if it will. So I don't know. Yeah, I would love, love to get uh, some thoughts on that. I didn't fully get your question. Yeah, so just it's, it's, it's a twofold question. The first one is how, what made you choose system D mm-hmm. to run the app and manage the app? And second, like, have you played with like hot code upgrades? Uh, I think distillery with e-deliver, I think it was, it, they used to support the hot code updates. I'm not sure how it will work with the way your app being managed by system D. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it, if it will call the exec stop, invoke the exec stop or not. I'm not sure. So I would love to learn more about that. Well, I used to use hot code upgrades a couple of years back, the time when I was still doing my compilations on the server itself. I used to use hot code upgrades, but I, I'm not doing it anymore because my upgrade process with using this is so fluid that it isn't really necessary. And the, the reason for using systemd is because it's the native way of doing things in Ubuntu since a couple of years. Before it used to be init and I used to write init scripts. But to be honest, I prefer systemd. It's a bit easier. Okay, it's not really code you write, it's just statements. And in, but I, I still have to write init, for example, for the software that I run on OpenWRT. So it's not like I don't do it anymore, but I, I like the, the systemd, the way it works the way it can automatically restart an application when something fails works very nicely. The way you can can easily uh, put in your environment and uh, put in everything that, that you need, which was always a hassle when using uh, init, which is also a, a bit of a problem if you try to run your own scripts. And why would you? I mean, there's no no reason, there's no extra in running your own script to, to, to run your application. So 
I use this. It works for me. The only thing that's something that I had a discussion about a couple of years back, trying to remember his name, who wrote Distillery, that we had a discussion about... Just Bitwalker. Is yeah, Bitwalker. Potion, uh, <laughs> I think he's called. And we had a discussion about something that's common in the Ruby world, uh, which they call rolling upgrades, uh, which we don't usually have because we have a single application that's powerful enough to run everything. But one of the issues I ran into was that I need to stop my application, unpack my tar file, and restart my application. Now, I haven't tested it with the, the latest uh, versions of, of the release scripts that Mix makes, but one of the problems I had at that time was that in the stopping of your application, Distillery would write the version of the Earth or the Erlang runtime and of your Elixir in the file it uses to boot them up. So if you tried to upgrade your application while it was running, it would copy the new files in place. It would put the the new versions of Earth and of, uh, of Elixir if they'd been upgraded in that uh, start file. But once you did the shutdown of your application to restart the application, it would go back to the previous versions then all kind of nastiness would happen. Because one of the things that I don't do or not often do is increase my version numbers. Because in the way that I deploy, it isn't really necessary. And of course, for me, that would, would make it more difficult because every time I deploy a new version, it would create a new lib tree or add files to the lib tree. And that would, uh, would, would create, create a growth on my server that would at uh, a certain moment be difficult to manage. So I did do it sometimes, but most of the times it was more to um, solve a problem with assets than with Elixir code. Got it. Yeah, this is ringing a bell. Again, I haven't done this in like three three or four years, but I think the file you're talking about, is that, is that the vm.args file? Is that what you're talking about? Or is it a different one that stored all those? Yeah, I think it was start.earl or something like that. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, cool. I mean, that's a fair problem. So yeah, and like you said, you haven't had the need to do those updates, so there's no need for that. I guess this reminds me of another problem I had was, I think, logs. And this is, again, like in 2019. I know the logs would get erased between each update. It, it's like a central place where you, you know, drain all the logs before you copy a new binary to the server? Well, I, I don't have that problem because all my logging is coming in syslog. Oh, right. That's a good point. So SysMD, yeah. That's not an yeah. issue. Yeah. I've been playing around with trying to get my logs more structured, JSON, JSON logging and getting logs into uh, into uh, Grafana. Mm. But I'm still, it's more like, like a toy project at the moment than, than something I'm really, really working on. But uh, I have most of the pieces in place. I already have two or three products that do it, but I haven't had time yet to go into Grafana and to really interact with the logs to see if it's really worth it. But it's an extension and it's, it's a logical extension on what we're doing. Yeah. And especially in the project for Grafifi, where I have three different servers running, it's it's nice to be able to create your logs at one place and also see, because I, uh, for example, when one of my hotspot owners in his dashboard, for example, somebody who's online who needs to go offline, he clicks on the button to kick him out. It goes through to the other server. So it sends a message by pops up to the API server which will then use a Phoenix channel to talk with the C code on the OpenWRT router to kill its session. And that'll call back and say, okay, it's done. And then it'll come back to the first application using PubSub, and then he will go offline. 
And these interactions would also be nice if you could see the logging like interwoven with each right. other. And that's one of the reasons I want I want to to try and get this up and running and see. Okay, one of the other things that's on my uh, agenda to learn, which I still can't get my head around, is telemetry. Mm. That's called distributed tracing, right? That's what you're talking about, right? Yeah. yeah. Cool. Yeah, telemetry is really well built for that. Awesome. Very good. Alan, do you have any more questions uh, for Herman? No, I mean, it, it's, it's definitely interesting. Of course, I know that not every everything is meant for everybody, right? And, and we all don't do the same thing. So it's interesting to hear how you handle it, how you feel about it. I think a lot of it's about like, you know, kind of what I took away today was a lot of it's kind of history, hobby, as you also said, interest, and I, don't know, I forgot what else is the word. And uh, yeah, I think those are probably the two big ones. There's also another one. Control. I lost it. Yeah, control is another one. I forgot. That's a that's a pretty big one. That's something yeah. I used to have. A, I used. To, I think everybody. I think most programmers have that. They want to control everything because they know how bad things can happen, and only we know how bad it can happen. Only we know what has happened to us, so we can stop all these bad things from happening. But then I think sounds like I shared the kind of same thing with Adi. Is like, okay, I'm not going to use Kubernetes until I at least understand it at minimum and maybe try to run my own cluster. And it's like, okay, I know how this thing works now. I know how all the bad stuff. So let me just kind of, you know, slowly let go and let Amazon handle this. And then now you can focus more on the other issues that are more pressing rather than running a pseudo apt get update, <laughs> which... I sometimes do, but sometimes not. It just depends if I remember or not. I just like, I like that feeling that I don't have to worry about another heartbleed or these kind of things. Usually they have so many people handle that for me. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, it's good to know, oh, you know, wait for these guys to fix it. Who knows when that's going to happen? And then it's like, okay, I could just hot patch it because I just heard about it. it just broke out on, on the, the CVE just came in and, not, and the fix is already done. Right. That's kind of a good feeling too. Yeah. It happens that at five o'clock in the morning, I'm already behind my computer. Okay. <laughs> okay update. On the server update. <laughs> the server update. So then when my customer arrives in his office and he, he calls me and says, Did you hear that? Yep. Server's already upgraded. <laughs> yeah. It's also a symptom of, I think, how much technology has evolved too, right? Like Herman has been coding 10 years before I was even born. Right. And like it, it, a lot of what he was saying was like when my dad was also an engineer, like, he keeps telling me all these stories. You know, if you're used to doing things a certain way, yes, you evolve as time goes, yeah. but it's harder for you to let go of control and knowledge that you know, right? I know how this works, so why should I not do it, right? And Alan, you and I will hit that too in like six, six seven years. Like we'll, we'll hit, you have this chat GPT thing come in and you, the next crop of engineers will be like, hey, just write 5% of the code that you deploy. <laughs> you know, and you'd be like, you know, I'd be like, no, I want to write that. I want I want to I want to have control over that, right? So, it's again, I think a symptom of the fact that technology is just growing at an exponential rate and we keep building abstractions on top of abstractions and people are used to lower level of abstraction want to retain some some control over, <laughs> you know, how they do how to do their business. Yeah, because one of the other things I also run software on is on nerves. And there you you need to have some knowledge of the running system yeah. because well, it's easy to deploy a feeding app to, to nurse device. It's that's like nothing. But if you want to do something more, then you need to know more about the running system and you need to know more about how it works and what, which right. which files to edit or which which extra kernel modules you need and, and things like that and, and use menu con, config or, or things like that to add packages and which is which is which is fun. 
I to leave from. Uh, I, but I, I understand people that say, well, I don't care for that. I just want to be able to push the button and my application is live. I understand this perfectly. Certainly, I stand in awe of the guys that fly and I love reading their blog posts. They have so much knowledge about all the interconnection and things like that. I, I love the way in which, in which they've made a system that you can deploy your app around the world without any hassle. But sadly, I don't have that kind of application to run. <laughs> So for me at the moment, it's not something I'm going to use, but I will read what they write and I will take their knowledge and try to apply it in situations where it works for me. What I wanted to say is this, is I kind of have another flip side to this, if I understand kind of what, what you guys are talking about. When I was working in a bank, we did have one part of the bank that gave us a JSON API. So actually, I'm sorry, I forgot the air quotes, JSON API. Um, it was kind of interesting. So everything, you know, with JSON, the keys have to be strings, right? Double quoted strings. Well, all of their values, including null, were also double quoted strings. And they were missing Ooh. commas here and there. So, and and basically, you know, the the bank, which I think you said you worked in finance or, or the bank before, at least, some, at least what I heard from my manager at the time, who's much senior than me, was telling me that back then they would just make their own libraries. You couldn't bring in outside code. You had to make your own stuff. So it's very common to have a lot of people having this kind of homebrew kind of library that just was just not up to par. I mean, the positive is that you had the maintainer next to you. The negative was that he's busy maintaining his own stuff and he's not spending time on the actual core business stuff that needs to happen. He's, instead, he's trying to figure out where to put commas and not to double quote null. So this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I just want to give the flip side to, to, to kind of what I understood you guys were talking about. No, no, it's, 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 it's true. It's true. It's something that I sometimes uh, notice when, when I'm... I'm looking at something, I'm looking for some kind of functionality and there's somebody who wrote a library and I'm looking at the library, I don't really like the API he's made and my first, my next step then normally would be, okay, I'll write my own library for this. And sometimes I really have to tell myself, no, fix this so everybody can enjoy it instead of wasting your time creating something that only you're going to use. I've been dying for years to create a PDF library. I make a lot of PDFs. I do my own invoicing and things like that. So I need to, to generate PDFs. I hate shelling out. So I do not want to use things like PDFDK or anything else that you need to run a command line application to do something. I want these things to be in my code. Because if something goes wrong, then in my code, I can have my logging and things like that that will give me some kind of clue while the other applications, most of the time, it's like, eh, tough luck, it didn't work. So I've been helping uh, Andrew on his PDF library, but still, I, it's like, mm, sometimes I'm, I've got something somewhere here in my desk, the, the, the specification of PDF, it's like this. It's like, uh, what is it, more 750 pages, Victor Verso, two-sided, uh, with just the specification. It's like crazy. But still, there's something every, at least every year, I'm like two weeks working on a PDF library, and then I drop it again. Well, it's, I think it's, it's, it has something to do with age, certainly, with the history we have, as you say, because when we started out, there was nothing. When I used to program in BASIC on the Atom computer, there was nothing. There was no community like there is now, especially not in our country. Maybe it was in, in the States or something like that, but the real communities, um, for me, the Elixir community is my first real community that I take part in. I never felt at home in the Ruby community. When I went to ElixirConf in the States in 2016, it was my first ever conference I went to. So and if we look at 2016, I was like 46 at that time. So it's 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 certainly something to do with age, with history, with the the way we used to do things. But 
it's fun. When it gets boring, I'll try to find something that does it for me. But <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, that was uh, definitely gave me another perspective on this. And uh, I think I have a book about System D somewhere on my Kindle library. I might need to correct the <laughs> Adi, do you have anything else or shall we start the transition over to picks? All set. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood. I've been talking to a whole bunch of people that want to update their resume and find a better job. And I figure, well, why not just share my resume? So you, if you go to topendevs.com slash resume, enter your name and email address, then you'll get a copy of the resume that I use, that I've used through freelancing, through m- most of my career, as I've kind of refined it and tweaked it to get me the jobs that I want. Uh, like I said, topendevs.com slash resume will get you that. And uh, you can just kind of use the formatting. It comes in Word and Pages formats, and you can just fill it in from there. Okay. Shall we have Adi go first since I'm hosting? I am still trying to think. Give me like 30 seconds, dude. <laughs> I thought mine out many years ago. Since we're kind of talking a lot about infrastructure today, something, a tool that I've used for a long time, because again, like I said before, because I use a lot of Kubernetes, is I use this tool called Kubernetes, which is a paid solution, but I think I paid like 30 bucks one time or 60 bucks, I forgot, but it's definitely saved a lot of time and it's a lot easier to use than a command line, right? So I work with a lot of, I have a lot of, how do I say this? Most of the people I work with don't have as much Kubernetes experience as me, so they don't quite understand it. So having a visual tool they can click around is super useful for them. And also for me, because I like to click on my mouse rather than type with my keyboard. I'm kind of a weirdo like that. So this tool has been super helpful for me. I think it's worth it. I think it's similar to kind of Lens, and they're all about the same because basically Kubernetes is about the same. But I think this one's pretty good compared to Kubernetes. Compared to, sorry, compared to Lens. That's my pick. Shall we go to Herman then? <laughs> yeah, okay. So I have three picks. First one is the books by the late Sir Terry Pratchett, most commonly known, the Discworld novels, and recently... Uh, one of the books that he co-wrote with uh, Neil Gaiman has become very popular, which is Good Omens, which now has a series on uh, Amazon Prime and a second series in the make. Don't know whether you've heard of uh, Terry Pratchett and the Discworld. It's he's a he's a he's a fun writer. It's uh, it's stories of a world that uh, is uh, flat as a pancake and is carried on the backs of four elephants that themselves stand on a giant turtle that swims through space. So it's kind of different. It has its uh, its share of witches and trolls and, and things like that. So it's a, it's a kind of unique world, but it's very fun. I think he wrote about 30 books about it. And I've been enjoying them for the past, like, I think, 25 years. My second pick is a library by Sasha Juric, which is called Site Encrypt, which comes back a bit to my uh, <laughs> thing about doing everything yourself. And since learning of this library, I kind of dropped using Nginx as a reverse proxy in front of my applications to do SSL and things like that. And I just have Phoenix do it using this library, and it works extremely well. And for my third pick, people who know me and people who've met me on, on conferences and things like that know that I like to drink beer. And I live in Antwerp in Belgium, and Belgium is kind of known for beer. And not far away from me is a company called the Antwerpse Brau Company, which translates as the Antwerp Brew Company. And they have a number of very, very, very nice local beers. I don't know whether they export, but a reason more to come to Antwerp once in a while and indulge yourself. Great. Those were my picks. Awesome. I have a pick ready now. So this is like a resource I've been using for a little over a year now. It's called Dribble, D-R-I-Triple-B-L-E. It's a great place to just go and get 
inspiration for UIs. I know a lot of you know people who use Elixir are like early stage startups or have a, have a lot of side projects and stuff. Tailwind UI is great to get you know initial set of template, but if you are working on a you know for example a weird search feature that searches mm-hmm. across multiple types of records, how should it look like? Just go to Dribble type search in the search box and get inspiration. A lot of times you can also get uh, to the website and like also just go get the source code, right? So, but it, it's really cool. Uh, has saved me a lot of time. The startup that I was at when I built their entire product, which is cl- closing on Series A, they most of their product was Dribble inspired. So <laughs> yeah, you can build a profitable, huge product using, you know, inspirations from other websites. I also have like, it's not quite a pig. It's like an like a life update. Uh, I just started working at the score as a staff engineer last week. I was sick last week, so I didn't get a lot done. But this week, I'm talking to more people. It's a great place to work. Everyone's really nice. Uh, so if anyone's looking for like a good Elixir position, pedal stack, work with a bunch, great bunch of people. And the code base is pretty good too, from what I've seen. Uh, this uh, I can highly recommend the score already. Uh, so yeah, that's pretty much so it. No horror stories like you, I think we talked about last last time? Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. No process dictionary being used everywhere? <laughs> no, not, not at all. Like, yeah, the code base is actually really good. Unlike many of the big companies that adopted Elixir early stage, the score has really, I think they've been very intentional about keeping some quality there their quality is way above my bare minimum, and that's great. It's not where I would like an Elixir code base to be, obviously, but that's where you know I, I come in, and hopefully I can help them improve their quality. That's awesome. Sounds good. Great. Well, okay. and with that, that's the end of this, how the uh, Elixir was drank. So it was good. <laughs> See you guys next time on another episode of Elixir Mix. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.